About three weeks ago, we began a new series of messages called Cherish, looking at our marriages. And the premise of the messages are based upon that we are called to love and we do love unconditionally. And, and sometimes we do it because we're supposed to. And sometimes we do it because we're called to. And sometimes we do it because we have to. Cherish, on the other hand, is looking at the vows that many of us made to love, honor, and cherish each other that often is overlooked and sometimes is the reason in marriages that we've lost the love that we had that we thought we had in the beginning. Cherish takes on the idea we get to love you. We get to spend time with you. It is a privilege to do so. While saying that, we can also make ourselves what I would say more cherishable. We can make ourselves people that when our spouses look at us, they say, wow, you're worth cherishing. And so we have responsibility too to look at our lives and say, these are things that I can be doing. These are the things that make me cherishable. As we process through that and think that out, often we go back and think about what were the things that we found in our spouse that were attractive? What were the things that drew us in? They were godly. Maybe they were fun. They were spontaneous. They, they, they were practical. Whatever those things were are often the very things that drew us in the first place that we adored about that person, that we connected with that person, that in some ways we cherished these characteristics. I was thinking, what were those things that that maybe Anne saw about me that, that, that she saw as something she wanted to cherish. So I thought, I'm going to go back. Let's go back 30 years. I was 26 and Anne was 23. And we'll go back to our wedding picture from uh, 30 years ago. Uh, I think it was the mustache that, made her, that pulled her in. Like that was the thing back in the day. You had a stash. I mean, she's just gorgeous uh, and still is, by the way. But we were a lot younger then. Um, and, uh, and so I think back, what were those things? And what were those things for you that drew you in? And so as we process those, I have to go back and, and, and I've been processing and thinking, what are the things that I can be doing, that Anne can be doing, and that you can be doing, and your spouse can be doing to make yourself cherishable? And so we need those reminders. I'm going to show you some things today that I believe are principles that are clear in Scripture. These are the ways that we can do life together, we can be married couples together, and if we process and put these things into play, we become more cherishable. So grab your Bibles and turn to James chapter 3, and if you need a Bible, hold your hand up. Our ushers will be glad to put one in your hand, but turn to James chapter 3, and we're going to read one verse today to begin today's message. We're going to read verse 2. So would you stand with me as we read James chapter 3 and verse 2. Let's just see a principle that can make us more cherishable and something that we should be applying to our own lives. Let's read James chapter 3 and verse 2. Ready? Read. We all stumble in many ways. Now pause and hit the button. I want you to read it in first person singular. I stumble in many ways. So look again, let's just read this together. Ready, read. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. You may have a seat. And so as we think about that, 
James gives us a reminder that we're, we're sinful beings. We have an old sin nature that I shared last week in our Easter message that we are born with. We have these sins that we, we're doing today, tomorrow. We all have sins. But in order for us to become cherishable, we must be patient with the ways our spouse stumbles. Now, I want you to hold on to that. That means you. That means me. As we look at our spouses, we should be patient with them because they do have an old sin nature. And the reality is they will stumble and you will stumble. So we need to be patient. And the reason our relationships have rough patches is because we have fallen short. We have a fallen nature where, and we have these sins that we've committed. And so we must be patient and understanding that that's a reality. It's never going to be like we felt like it was when we first met. You remember when you first met and that infatuation process took place and you felt like your bride or groom right now could do no wrong. Like everything they did, like they were the greatest person on planet earth. And and, and, and thinking about that, the reality is there was a sinful nature in them, but we often overlooked it because there were all these kind of hormones that were assaulting us. And and quite frankly, we, we thought this is as good as it can get. And the reality is, if we're not careful in that process, we think this is how it's always going to be. We'll always be able to overcome and overlook offenses and we'll be good with this. But if we allow our spouses stumbling to assault us and how we cherish them, then we won't have a cherishing attitude. I think it's important to to briefly just look at the four stages of love. The first stage is this, and when I counsel people, I walk them through these stages. This first stage is called infatuation, and it generally exists between up to six to 12 months. So you meet the person, and for six, up to six to 12 months, you're in this infatuation stage. And the infatuation stage is this. You have euphoric feelings. You daydream about each other. You can see no wrong in, in your man or your woman. And it's a time when there's hormones released and you have, it triggers positive attitudes, increased energy, less need for sleep, unrealistic optimism. And somewhere between the 6 to 12 months, it begins to wane. And it's a scary time because we can make decisions we might later regret and you may be settled for someone that you shouldn't have settled for. And the reality is this, because you overlook I feel good. Like, man, I, I only need to sleep three hours and, and you'll stay up all night and, and you'll drive 650 miles to wave to them walking, standing in front of a cash register as they're working and you drive back. You don't need any monster drinks. You don't even need them. You're, you're infatuated. In fact, when I grew up, we didn't even have monster drinks. You just, I took one look at Ann. I was good for three days. It's just good. <laughs> but that's infatuation. You got to be careful during that stage. And I'll say, I'll meet with couples. I'll ask them, how long have you been together? Because during that stage, they can do no wrong. The second stage is the post-rapture stage. This is the one to five-year mark. And by the way, normally at the five-year mark, it's the highest percentage of where divorces take place. It's called the post-rapture stage. This is when people begin to think they're falling out of love. This is where the brain and its nerve endings begin to leave the infatuation state and go back to a normal state. This is where novelty wears off. 
This is where introverts talk less. This is where pragmatics become less spontaneous. This is where angry people start losing their temper again. In fact, if you get married during the infatuation time, the post-rapture stage can be very discouraging because his or her negative traits begin to glare right at you. And if you start focusing on what they're doing wrong, you will find yourself saying, what's going on? The next stage is this. It's called the discovery stage. This is the six to 10 year period in a marriage. It's the next period when most divorces take place. This is a time when you truly care about the needs of your spouse, a time to nurture, respect, and have admiration for each other. You should. It is a time when you truly find out what love means. The final stage is called the connection stage. This is the 11th year and on. It's when you experience expanding commitment, deepening friendships, and safety flourishes. An intimate connection takes place during this time that you've never experienced before, and it soars way past even the infatuation stage. So you must be careful, because it's real easy to be patient when your man or your woman stumbles in the infatuation stage. And by the way, I would say this. If you want to build a marriage in which you keep cherishing, you have to get over the hurdle of expecting your spouse to be perfect. You must learn to be good forgivers. Some of you don't learn it till way, way down the road, and you've done so much damage. You must learn to become not only good forgivers, but people are eager to show mercy and forgiveness in the same way God does. We must be willing to do that. I would say this, and these are some thoughts. The goal of a cherishing relationship is to know each other so well that we know the dark corners and the weak links of our personalities and yet still cherish, respect, adore, and move forward towards each other. That's the goal. Understanding, you know what? You have some quirks about you, and I have some quirks about me. I have some sinful behaviors, and there are things about me that it's because of my old sin nature. It's the goal of cherishing is to know those and still to realize they're going to stumble, be good forgivers, show mercy and grace. And the other side is this. We should become those that less and less practice those habits. And we can help each other overcome issues when we take that mindset. But never, ever, ever, hear me out, get to the point where you expect your spouse never to stumble. Otherwise, you won't cherish them. You will resent them. I would even say that your ability, hear me out, this is important, your ability to cherish them when they stumble is in fact a direct barometer of your own spiritual maturity. And some of you have had spouses You've had seasons, and boy, they have been there for you, and they've, 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 they've forgiven, and, and, they've, and, and, you, and you didn't. And now you're in a place where you're expecting that same thing from them, and, and they're th- saying, well, what about when I did all this for you? And you neglected that whole time where they came back, they forgave. The reality is if we both take that mindset in the midst of it and grow through it and accept each other, In the midst of it, that's when a person feels cherished. 
You see, if you just take it for granted, they don't feel cherished. They're just saying, well, she just wants me back. He just wants me back. They don't really cherish me. And so when we develop that mindset from the beginning, your spouse begins to feel cherished throughout it. I love this quote that I read this week, and here's the quote. You know you are a spiritually strong person when you can live joyfully and gracefully around spiritually weak people. That's you and me. You know that you're a spiritually strong person and when you have the ability and you process and you choose to forgive and you choose to sow mercy and grace to them. You see, the less we cherish an imperfect spouse, the less impact we will have on their change and transformation. Hear me out on this. If you don't cherish an imperfect spouse, why in the world would they ever, ever, ever want to improve their behavior? Why in the world would transformation take place if you're not willing to extend grace? If you continue to point out all the wrong things and never acknowledge the good, they are less apt to believe they can ever overcome. And so the less you cherish an imperfect spouse, the less transformation and change is apt to take place. If you truly want a better spouse and you want to be a better spouse, learn to cherish the imperfect spouse you already have and they are more likely to become the better spouse. Solomon said something that's very powerful when it applies to stumbling and looking at sins in our lives. He said this. He said in Proverbs 19.11, a person's wisdom yields patience. It is to one's glory to overlook an offense. It is to one's glory, hear me, to overlook. Hear me out. You and I are, are offended daily by people. And, and, and we are offended regularly. And we offend our spouses regularly. We shouldn't, but we do. It is to one's glory to overlook. One translation says it like this. Those with good sense are slow to anger and it's to their glory to overlook an offense. Part of the problem is this, when we think about this, we aren't willing to look at the presence behind the problem. Let me explain. You see, when we see something that happens, when something is done wrong to us in a marriage, we have a tendency to focus on that instead of focusing on the person. Let me give you an example. Suppose you're out there as a wife and you've been longing for your, your husband to worship with you in a church on Sunday. Suppose that's been a lifelong dream of yours. You're following after Jesus and you've been bringing the kids for years and he kind of goes and does his thing. He sleeps in on Sunday and he hasn't been real active in, in the marriage. But suppose he wakes up one Sunday and he comes and he shows up on Sunday morning. He walks into church and he, he sits down. I mean, he's there. Your, your small group has been praying. The, your friends have been praying. And he shows up and comes to church. Like, he, he, he did it. Like, he's with you. And so, as you, you process, you're watching him. And so, the, the worship pastor stands up and says, everyone stand. And, and these words come up on the screen. And, and everyone's singing. And you watch him. He has his hands in his pocket. He's not singing. 
And you're just looking at him and wondering what's going on. And, and so then the pastor says, open up your Bible. Anybody need a Bible? And he doesn't take one. And, and he doesn't open up his mobile device and, and go to the passage. And you're wondering, why don't you have your Bible open? And, 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 and why didn't you take a Bible? And, and if you're not careful, you are looking at all the things, the problems. In fact, on your way home, he finally came to church. He finally showed up. Your prayer is answered. And on the way home, you're asking him, why didn't you sing? How come you didn't open the Bible? You see, what you've done is this. You've neglected to look at the presence behind the problem. You could have said, you're with me. Instead of looking at the problem. And we do it all the time. If we aren't willing to overlook an offense. Let me show you what I mean. Jeremy and Lily, can I, can I ask you guys, you're a married couple, can you come up here a second? L- let me explain. Now think about this. Be willing to look at the presence behind the problem. Just have you guys kind of face each other. Lily, please stand here. And Jeremy, please stand here. Just kind of look at each other. Kind of, kind of look at each other like you love each other. <laughs> But (laughs) generally, let me say this, generally, generally. See, quotes, generally, generally, generally. You heard me say generally, okay, generally. Women are later than men getting ready, generally. I said that. (laughs) And we know why, guys, don't we? Because, you know, we look in the mirror, good. And quite frank, they, they look phenomenal too, but they take longer. So how many times have you been sitting, Jeremy, it's one of these days and you're heading somewhere and, and uh, you're, you're like, Lily, we got to go. And I, I want to be there on time. And on time for you is 10 minutes early and on time for Lily is 10 minutes late. Anybody ever been there? And if you're not careful, what we do, we look at the problem and we get so focused on what they've done that we throw a wet blanket over them. So throw this over top of her head, a wet blanket over her. Oh. And so what happens is, instead of seeing her presence, she's here, she's gone with you, you're looking at the problem. You've thrown a wet blanket. So rescue your wife. Would you rescue her? <laughs> All right, Lily, your turn. She's ready. <laughs> so you're at home, Lily, and you walk into the bathroom, and the toilet seat is up again. All the time. All the time. And so if, if you look at the, don't look at the presence behind the problem, you throw a wet blanket on him. Like, Jeremy, not again. Instead of thinking, like, I got a husband in my house. There's a man that lives here. And you know what? I, I, I love him. And you are so ticked off at the seat being up. But go ahead and rescue him. Go ahead and rescue him. So we have a, we have a problem here. <laughs> I love these guys. <laughs> but what happens is this. We have a tendency to not look at the presence behind the problem. And by the way, let me, let me just say, put this out there. Like, whoever had toilet rights that said, ladies, by the way, you don't keep the seat up for us. Whoever said it has to stay down, you can sit down. <laughs> Think of that one a little bit. Like, we walk in there, it's like, hey, you didn't keep it up. That's funny, I don't care what you think. 
in all seriousness, we do it all the time. Instead of saying, my husband's in church and he's with me. I have a man that loves me. I have a wife that adores me. Instead of looking at her being late, you can look beside you and say, I'm so glad. Instead of looking at the problem, look at their presence with you. You see, people who have a tendency to be biblical, and it says it is to one's glory to overlook offense, look at the presence behind the problem. You see, but if you want to become more cherishable, here's what is not helpful. Trying to overcome the divide by thinking our spouses have the problem instead of us. It's your problem. There's something wrong with you. In the book here written by Gary Thomas, he gives a great example of this. It's making ourselves cherishable. And just listen what he says. He says it's the divide between the hypocritical gap can be called pride. Here's what's not helpful. Trying to overcome the divide by thinking our spouses have the problem instead of us. He says we do this quite cleverly saying he or she is just overreacting. Instead of us having a problem, the problem is our spouse's overreactions to the problem. And when we get a friend or extended family member to confirm that our spouses are being too hard on us, if you want to become someone who is more cherishable, you have to realize, hear me out, your friend's or extended family's member's opinion of you isn't as valid as your spouse's is for this reason. As Tim Keller says, While your character flaws may have created mild problems for other people, they will create major problems for your spouse and your marriage. No one else is as inconvenienced and hurt by your flaws as your spouse is. And therefore, your spouse becomes more keenly aware of what is wrong with you than anyone else has ever been. It is one thing to visit a character flaw. It's another thing to entirely To live with a character flaw. Just because something about you doesn't bother a friend, a parent, or a sibling, it doesn't mean that your spouse is overreacting when it bothers them. Marriage amplifies everything, sometimes for good and sometimes for bad. Then he says this, the fact that it doesn't bother my brother or my best friend is irrelevant because I'm not trying to build a marriage with my brother or best friend. I'm trying to build a marriage with my spouse. And if my obsessiveness is getting in the way, then I need to be more humble, honest, and ruthless with that weakness. Let me give you a practical example. We must be patient with their stumble, things that they stumble with. I'm one of those guys, and I'll admit it, I'm not proud of this, and honestly, I, I, I work hard at it. But I'm that dude in a room, if someone is chewing their food too loud, it drives me nuts. You know, inside, outside it might be, inside, it's like Pac-Man going all over the place. If someone chomps on an apple and slurps it, I'm about ready to come unglued. I know I'm weird, but I'm just very vulnerable moment here, just, just. And so when I hear noises, if someone is, if they're clicking their pen and they're in the room beside me, Inside, I want to kill that person. <laughs> I know it's a sickness. It is. 
And so I've done my best to recognize that's how I'm wired, that's who I am. And so I often leave a room or I'll, I'll just keep saying, Jesus, 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 Jesus. I'm fully aware of that. And by, by the way, our son Isaiah has the same sickness. So, and so together we have that. And by the way, our family is fully aware. In fact, there's some special name for it. I, it's too long for me to pronounce. It's one of my many special long names about me. And so recently, my wife Anne said to me, she said, Jim, you hear all the noises. You smell everything. I have extra special. If I smell, smell, oh, I'm done. Just, I mean, my sense is it's good for hunting, but it's not good for being a good husband, by the way. <laughs> so she said to me recently, she said, Jim, you hear everyone chewing their food and slurping, slurping their drinks and chomping on their gum. And she says, you're aware of that. But she says, Jim, you crunch your food louder than anybody. <laughs> Something happened to you. I can't hear myself. I'm okay with me. But it hit me. Like, it is to one's glory to overlook an offense. And I said, you know what, honey? You're right. And so she said that. So I have a choice to make. Keep crunching or chew softer. And so, to be quite frank, as weird as it sounds, I've been trying to chew softer. Why? <laughs> Because I want to be cherishable. I want my wife, I want her to know that I'm working on my end too. Another principle that we should apply when it comes to becoming more cherishable is to become a humble person in your marriage. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 and verses 3 through 4. This is an incredible passage, and it's called the Great Kenosis Passage. It's where God emptied himself. It's where God became man. It's the incarnation passage where God, Jesus left earth and came, became the God-man. And so Paul tried to describe it. And then he says this in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3 and 4, he said this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. How much should we do out of selfish ambition? Nothing. Or vain conceit. Rather in what? What's the word? Humility, value others above what? Value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of what? Others. You see, when we learn to value our wives and our husbands, hear me out, above ourselves and above our own interests, we have humbled ourselves and we are living like Christ live. It's important that our spouses are our highest earthly love. And in doing so, we humble ourselves. We value what is important to them more than what's important to us. And we come to grips with this realization that it's a privilege to love them and to have them by our side. We soon strip ourselves of the pride in our lives that stands against health Vibrancy, passion, spontaneity, and genuine love for each other. A person that cherishes their spouse. I'm being, I woke up this morning, wakes up and says this. I didn't say it loud because she was still sleeping. I woke up at 4 a.m. this morning. Holy cow. I did. I get to do life with you. It wakes up every morning and says, it is a privilege 
to do life. And I am interested in placing your values above mine. And let me, let me tell you, that's hard. It's not like you just make a choice one day. I'm going to I'm care about what you care more about you than what, what I care about what I want. But God has a lot to say about this. And I personally believe one of the biggest problems in marriages is pride. If you look back over the history of your marriage, you were unwilling. You wanted your way. You wanted to be served. You wanted your interests to be placed above theirs. And in James chapter 4, verse 6, here's what James says. Listen to this. He says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. So what happens then? Prideful people are angry, defensive, controlling, they manipulate, they argue, and they try to stay focused on their wants and needs only. So think about it this way. If God opposes those that are prideful, here's what it means in your marriage, in my marriage. God stands actively against us when we are prideful. Think about this. When you dig your heels in against your spouse, you are inviting God to oppose you and ultimately opposing God. See, you wonder, here's what happens. Well, Pastor Jim, I just don't understand. I can't understand why it's not working out. And I even cried out to God, dear God, where are you at? Won't you do something with him? Won't you do something with her? Dear God, it feels like there is no breakthrough here. And as you cry out to God, God says, I did do something. I'm opposing you. See, God actively, 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 actively opposes those that are prideful. He said, I did answer your prayer. I'm giving you exactly what you ask for. Instead of coming together, there's this pressure against. But it says that he and she who humbles themselves, he extends favor and grace. He pulls out opposing you and brings you together. I just wonder, look back, how prideful are you? I'm going to get it. I'm going to, she deserves me. He deserves me. I'm going to make sure and I'm doing all the right stuff and she better and he better. That's an attitude of pride. God is saying, okay, I oppose you. You see, humble people, on the other hand, are broken over their sin. More concerned with honoring God then arguing about what they deserve and try hard to stay focused on what Jesus would have them do. Think about it again this way. God stands actively against you when you are prideful. And way too many marriages are looking for ways for each other to win arguments and get their own personal way. And so we manipulate, we control Some of you are so controlling. I'm going to control because I want my way. I'm going to make sure I fix it. I'm going to make sure it happens. And you control 
And when you do that, it's a prideful position to take. See, many of you want to win arguments and get their own personal way. Many will say, I am not going to back down. That means that she has won. That he has. I'm not going to be humble. I'm not extending grace. I'm not giving forgiveness. I'm not showing mercy. I'm not putting their values above my own. I'm not putting his interests above mine. I'm not. I'm not. And because in your mind, you think you have won. And you want, I want to say, won what? Meanwhile, that person remains, who takes that perspective, miserable because of pride and even has distanced themselves from God. Listen, people, your husband and wife will never be won over by you and your pride. They will be won over by you and your humility going down and serving their interests. Jesus did it. That's, that's, that's Philippians 2. He humbled himself even to the point where you might say, yeah, but you don't know what they did to me. Listen, whatever they did to you and whatever the 15 billion other people did, God took it all on the cross named Jesus Christ. And he took it all. And he didn't say, I'm going to place my interests above the world's. He died for it. You might say, well, you don't know what I live with. <laughs> I don't. But Jesus took what you live with and every else but he lives with and took it all to the cross. So what right do we ever have in pride to say, I don't want them to win. If 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 I humble myself, then they win. You see, people are won over by you going down, not standing against. You see, people should look at our marriages and see God in us. (laughs) That's They should. Displaying God to the world is the purpose of the church, and it's the purpose of your marriage. Seriously, when someone looks at your marriage, do they see God? Do they look at your marriage and say, wow, there's humility, and wow, he cherishes her, and she cherishes him, and boy, they love each other, and and they're they're acting in a, a godly, responsible way. And when he messes up, I mean, he's screwed up, she's screwed up, they're willing to work through it, and You see, our marriages should be a display to the world. I love what Francis Chan said in regards to this in his book, You and Me Forever. He says this, just listen to this. This is powerful what he says in regards to this whole display. He says, I remember sitting across the table from my friend Raisha, whose marriage was in a wreck. Her husband had betrayed her and at one point had even picked up things and left. It looked like he was finally going to come back and try to reconcile with her, and Raisha was struggling. She looked me right in the eyes, Francis said, and said, I don't love him. My heart doesn't feel anything for him. And probably so, because she was so hurt by her husband. And he says, it was her next statement that shocked me, but I do love God. And I will do whatever it takes because I love him. And then she asked Francis, is that okay? He said, to be honest, in that moment, I had a million thoughts swirling in my mind. The grace of God that flooded Raisha's heart silenced me. A woman who didn't feel loved and felt nothing for him was completely, I was completely moved by her intense desire to honor God 
and obey what she was asking her to do, what he was asking her to do. Her love for God made her willing to do anything, regardless of how she felt and regardless of how many told her she deserved better. And praise God, he says, their marriage completely turned around. This is one of the first times I witnessed the power of humility, and it is undeniable. Seeing God move like that changes our perspective on things. How many times have people allowed their pride to stand in the way of something beautiful that God was about to do? See, that doesn't make sense. That's hard. But somehow the world's got to look at our marriages and say, it looks like God. (laughs) That's what God does for us. You see, people should see the way we love and serve our husbands and wives with a glimpse of humility and love that Jesus showed us should come out through us. But the problem is this. We have way too many marriage-centered marriages instead of Christ-centered marriages. And what do I mean by that? Christ-centered says, I'm going to exemplify the characteristics of God. I'm going to humble myself. I want the world to look at my marriage and see Christ. Marriage-centered marriages say, we got we to gotta make this better. We, we got to have fun. We got to make sure we're having a good time while we're here. It's all about us instead of saying, it's all about Jesus. Part of the problem is that we aren't... We aren't seeing this is because we're trying to find our identity through a person instead of in the person of Jesus Christ. Do you know what the primary responsibility of your marriage is? When I sit with pre-marriage counseling, this is what I tell them. The primary responsibility of your marriage and your future marriage is to make disciples. What? Like, what do you mean, Pastor Jim? Well, what is the Great Commission and the Great Commandment? Love God, love one another. Go ye therefore and make disciples. It doesn't change when you get married. <laughs> In fact, now you have a helpmate to do it together. And so your marriage, the fulfillment of the great commission and great commandment. And I've said this on many occasions. My wife is most attractive to me. She's, she's attractive, just beautiful physically. But she is most attractive to me when she's on mission for Jesus. There are times when we're serving together, I stand back. I can't tell you how many times I just stood back and watch her share her faith. She'll tell me. She, there's mornings when she's reading God's word and she's journaling in her room. And I look in the room and I am, woo! I love that about her. And when she's chasing after Jesus and becoming more like Jesus, there's something in my heart that just connects deeply to her. Why? Because she's living out the great commandment and great commission in our marriage. You see, when we have an internal mindedness, it keeps us from silly arguments. There's no time to fight. We have better things to pursue than our interests. And you know what? We can't afford to waste our marriage by merely pursuing our own happiness. God never called us to be happy in our marriages, but to be holy in our marriages. Hear me out. I want to give my wife a great life. And I long to do that. Like, I love spoiling the hand. It's one of my favorite things to do. Like, I love doing things for her that I know that she loves. Like, I, I enjoy buying her things that she loves. I like surprising her. It's one of my favorite things to do, surprise her. I, I, I really, really love that. 
but it's so temporary. I'm only here, and you're only here 70, 80 years. But listen, my wife is going to spend eternity in heaven with Jesus one day. And Ephesians tells us in chapter 5 and verse 25 to 27, husbands, hear me out. Husbands, here, listen to me. Just listen. You know what our responsibility is? You know what our responsibility is? Our responsibility is to prepare our wives to stand before Jesus one day as an unblemished bride. Our responsibility on earth is, 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 for, is for my wife to stand before Jesus one day and I have prepared her, I've poured into her, I've helped shape her, and, I, and, and together we've been on mission for God so that she stands before God one day and hopefully Jesus will say, well done, Ann Bortner Brown. That's, that's my responsibility. That's yours. It's to prepare your bride. Like, is that, is that what you've been getting up and doing? Like, no, that's your responsibility. What an incredible responsibility and privilege that is. Yet way too many marriages spend their entire marriages and husbands planning for retirement, planning for vacations. Hear me out. We love vacations. We love the beach. We love the mountains. And we go there. Listen, but if that gets in the way of us becoming more like Christ and making disciples, then we need to revisit that. Because I and you, those of us who know Christ, will spend eternity in heaven with God one day. And the scripture is clear. Based upon how we lived on earth, there are different powers, positions, and privileges. And based upon how we lived on earth in our marriages and individually, it says that crowns will be given to us, not for us to keep, but we lay them at Jesus' feet. I want my wife to stand and kneel before God with all seven crowns because somehow I have contributed into her becoming a godly woman. Listen, that's why we're here, men. That's our responsibility. How are you doing? How have you done the first 10 years of your marriage? One day you will die, and I will die. And there's no second chances. You see, the more you invest in your spouse, and hear me out, the more time, the more emotion, more service, and even your welfare, the more you will cherish each other. Why? Because sacrifice shapes your heart. You see, when I pour into something and I'm trying to make it into something what God intended, it's like, it's like that opening illustration in the series of that car. The time we spent on that car, making it, taking to the car show and sitting in front and saying, look at my car. You know why we valued that car so much? Because we labored over that 327 engine. We labored over that rock crusher transmission. We labored over those Krager dual exhausts and hush hush mufflers. We labored over it. We, we, we sacrificed for it. And you know why? It shapes our heart. We were proud of it. We cherish it. In the same way, when we do that for each other, we cherish each other. Sacrifices breeds a cherishing spirit. Some practical ways to close out this message. 1 Peter 2.9 says this. Recognize your spouse's royalty. Say, Pastor Jim, how can, I, how can I view that? Like, that sounds great. 1 Peter 2.9 says, we are a royal priesthood. How would you treat a queen? How would you treat a prince if they spent the afternoon with you? What would you do for them? 
And the reality is when we know Christ, you got a queen and a prince in the vehicle. Another way, just watch and delight in your spouse. I watched my wife yesterday. We went to a soccer match at Grace College, and Isaiah has a, 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 a friend, a girl that he's interested in, and, and so we wanted to go down. She's a really good soccer player from, from Colorado, so we went down to Grace, and we sat in 25-degree weather. You do that when you're interested in someone and watch a soccer match. <laughs> and I watched afterwards. The game was over. The match was over. And, and I just stood back and I watched my wife. Sometimes I just watch her and I'm just, I just cherish her so much. I watch her. She has this ability to make everyone feel loved. I watch her do it with orphan kids. They call her Mama Ann. And I watch her go out to Seisha afterwards and she just, it's like, she just hugs her and she hugged all the guys that were there. And, just, it's like, and I just stood back and I was just watching. It was like, and I delighted in my wife. Sometimes we just need to pull it. Maybe it's your man just taking time to work on the car to keep, keep your vehicles in shape. And you've taken it for granted. You had to pay all the money to go to the shop, but he's laboring over your vehicle. Sometimes you need to stand back and just see his greasy fingers and the dirt on it and say, man, what a man. Just watch and delight instead of focusing on the problems. And I would say this. Let your spouse know that they are your priority. That's what you do when you cherish something. Some of you are trying to recover from that because they haven't been. And let me tell you, it doesn't happen overnight. You won't fix it overnight. It's all the thousands of decisions that you make every day that help you get to a point where your wife and your husband feels cherished. One or two decisions won't do that. And so how can we do that in closing out this message today? We began this series with a song that I said was played at our daughter Hannah's wedding and our son-in-law Johnny's wedding. And it says, I get to love you. And we said this. We said that cherish means I get to love you. And it's a privilege to do so. So in light of that, I want you to grab husbands. Hear me out. Now listen to me. Don't sit there. I want you to grab your wife and closing out this service today, Pastor Jeremy's going to lead us in that song and we're going to slow dance with our wives. So grab your bride. Listen, take them to the center aisle, take them to the front, take them to the sides. This is your chance to cherish your bride. This is for married couples only. So don't sit there. Yeah.
missed. We'll see you next week. Cherish each other.